Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. Lord, your word is so rich. It gives us life. Help us to be hearers and doers of your word. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Rachel and I have decided uh, that we're going to kind of be splitting up this time a little bit before we jump into some Q&A. And before we jump into some practical things, I thought, um, I I, I always believe that uh, before you do... uh, do right, you need to make sure that you think right. And I think a lot of times in our passion to do right, we don't think right. And when we do right without thinking right, you actually end up doing not so right or doing wrong. So there's a few things that I just want to cover real quick. Um, ah, my, my new book, this is, isn't that a cool cover? I love that. <laughs> yeah. We, lived in a, we live in a world of gray and biblical sexuality is black and white. That's kind of part of what I was getting at. Um, Holy Shakespeare in the Gospel, Sex, Design, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Um, uh, we've done a bad job at engaging um, the world, really, and we have such a bad reputation. This book is written by uh, David Kinnaman, G- Gabe Lyons, and they ask young Americans what you think about Christians. And look at, I mean, who wants to be a Christian? <laughs> That's what we face. I-, I hope we realize this. And guess what the very, very top? I'm going to use this really fancy thing. Look at that. Anti-homosexual, 91%, 80%, 8 out of 10 of our own youth. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality, it says anti-homosexual wool. We're viewed Christians to be against gay people, and that's wrong. We've done a bad job at engaging not only on this topic, but also gay friends. Um, first of all, we need to realize this is not the worst sin. It's, uh, it is sin, but it's not the worst sin. There's only one unpardonable sin, it's that grie- and that's grieving the Holy Spirit, not same-sex relationships. Um, so it's great to begin with our own brokenness, with our own sin, leading to humility. Second, and here's some things, and I love how Rachel ta- touched on this. Um, we have uh, a misunderstanding and, and, and been inconsistent regarding our, our understanding of relationships, specifically marriage and singleness, and we have elevated marriage to be much higher than it ought to be. Um, it's good, but I think we viewed it to be. Um, here's an example: uh, the Supreme Court on June twenty, June twenty sixth, twenty sixteen, when they legalized same sex marriage by a five four uh, margin vote. Justice Kennedy wrote this, the majority opinion, and if you you can read it online, in his last paragraph, he said, "Marriage is the highest ideal of love." I'll say it again. He, he wrote, and, and this is the big premise of, of why he voted in this way and much of what uh, those marriage equality advocates were saying, marriage is the highest ideal of love. I disagree. It's good. It's even very good, but it's not the highest ideal of love. God is. Think about this for a moment. All the world religions can claim their God is loving. Our God is love. It's an ontological reality of our God. It's not, he's not just loving. He is, but he is love. And so when anyone says that, you know, this is the highest ideal of, no, I'm going to very respectfully but firmly disagree. The greatest expression of love is when God has sent his only son to die for us on the cross. That's love. Um, so we need to ha- really understand that we've denigrated the goodness of singleness. Um, I think even many of our uh, churches in America, evangelical churches, won't even consider a single man to be a pastor. 
if that were the case, if Jesus and Paul were living today, they wouldn't be able to serve, and I believe, 90% of our evangelical churches today. There's something wrong with that. You know, we, we, we think somehow that, yeah, I mean, yes, we, we've taken this very good thing, and honestly, I think we're at risk of sometimes idolizing it. And you might think, how can we idolize marriage? It's good. It is good. But let me tell you one of the most deceptive forms of idolatry, when we worship something good. And I know this gets at the heart of many of you. Many of you are married, and, and, and you're happily married. Uh, and I'm not taking away from that at all. I am single. I'm 47 years old. And I think we have to continue to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. But let me tell you what I think we've done. I think we've done that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness, at best, is a consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're single. I bet you have some Christian friends who are married, or who are single, unmarried, and um, heaven forbid they're, you know, past their 40s or 50s and 60 maybe. And I bet you feel sorry for them. I bet there's a tinge of pity. Can I tell you, singles in Christian community don't need our pity. They need to be loved. They need to be known that though they might not have actual physical children of their own and they might not have a spouse of their own, they belong to the eternal family, which is the church. I, you know, I really wonder what would, how this world would be so radically transformed if the church actually lived as the church, as true brothers. I mean, the brothers that you have, our blood brothers and sisters that you have, actually, that's temporary. The true eternal brotherhood, a family, are people who are followers of Christ. That's what's going to be eternal. Like Rachel just said, marriage is temporary. Jesus says that in Matthew 22. So, you know, hate to break the news to you, but we're all going to be single in eternity. But you know why? Because we're going to be went to the Lamb of God. That's amazing. So we have to have this, this the, the now perspective of the goodness of marriage, but also the eternal perspective of how earthly marriage is really a shadow of the eternal reality of Christ being wed to the Lamb of God. So hopefully, you know, that should communicate to us that, that your marriage should reflect, hopefully reflect to the glory of God. And I actually, I also think that even being single should reflect the glory of God, that even in my singleness and being kind of an anomaly according to the world that I can still give glory to God even in my singleness. We talk about, um, you know, what, you know, all these misunderstandings and this is so much part of our culture that singleness is sometimes equated to loneliness, but it's not equated to loneliness because I know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. <laughs> so it's not the cure to loneliness, but you know what's the cure to loneliness? It begins with a relationship with God. That's a cure to loneliness. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that not only is singleness good, it says that it's a gift. You know, this, this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's not a, there's a lot of kind of um, uh, interpretive challenges to, to get through and understand, but it's a, it's a very important chapter for us to, 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 to tackle through when it comes to not only singleness, but also marriage. But in this chapter, he says that singleness is good. He even goes on and says that it's a gift. But let me tell you, for those of you that aren't single, don't keep reminding your single friends that it's a gift. <laughs> Most single Christians that I know hate that verse. I don't know anyone that says, that's my life verse. I love it when Paul says, you know, hallelujah, you know. <laughs> 
No, most singles that I know don't like that verse. You know, what's that return policy on that gift? You know, can I still get that received when I give it back like a bad Christmas present. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, he says that it's a good, that it's good, that he even says that it's a gift. We can all say marriage is a gift. Hallelujah. But when it comes to singleness, not so much. More like it's a calling. Whew. Yeah. Not anyone can be single. You know, have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but most superheroes are single. <laughs> what does that communicate to our young youth? That to be single, you have to have superhuman power just to be single. And your, you know, love interest is your weakness. Um, even, even the fairy tales we teach our kids, how do, how do they all end? Well, first they get married and then they live happily ever after the end. Like there's no more story to tell here, right? Like Rachel was saying, you know, you go and you know, being a Christian is you get married and that's it. You know, like, that's, that's so much of like the, the message that, that we teach. It's, it really is ingrained in a Christian culture. That's why I teach at Moody Bridal Institute. It's insane. You know, springtime at Moody. It's, it's really crazy. Uh, it's it's so much it's it's it is part of their culture and i understand my students they don't want to do as the world does and they you know they date as the world does so they don't date they court but you know first date they're ready you know because they don't want to just you know i don't want to you know play games so they're like already discussing like well you don't want to have kids and i'm like first date you know, I was like, okay, there has to be some balance here. You know what I mean? Okay, you don't date as the world, but you're not on like overdrive, you know, over here. You know, you know, slow down, just get to know each other. You know, a name would be good, you know. <laughs> so uh, I always tell my students, uh, especially young ladies, watch out for this pickup line. The, the pickup line at Moody is, let's share testimonies. <laughs> <laughs> watch out. Um so anyway, we, we have to realize the goodness of marriage, the goodness of singleness, because honestly, I don't think we're addressed, we're ready to jump into the practical things and, 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 and help to minister and love our loved ones in the gay community until we first redeem biblical singleness. When I look at the full counsel of God, you know, I, I see that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer only emphasize one against the other. We also need to have this consistent view regarding sexuality. What is sexuality? What, you know, cause we, we think, you know, sexuality, God's standard for sexuality is heterosexuality. And I think that is so ingrained into what we think because, oh, well, homosexuality is bad. So heterosexuality must be good. I even know of people who, minister to or counsel people who have same-sex attractions and they say you know my goal with this individual my client is to help them to pursue their heterosexual potential well is that you know really what because heterosexuality that means being attracted to some of the opposite sex sexually intimate with some of the some of the opposite sex that's pretty broad so broad that i could be sleeping with about a dozen women that's also considered heterosexuality i could be a married man cheating on my wife and that's also considered heterosexuality. I could be a single man, unmarried, but I have a girlfriend. I'm living together with her. We even have a, a child together out of wedlock, but we're, we're monogamous. We've never been with anyone else. But that's also considered heterosexuality. And this is why when we have this distorted view of lifting up heterosexuality, that's why I even see where we celebrate where someone who had same-sex attractions, that they begin lusting after women. 
I even know where sometimes in therapy sessions, they will use pornography to help try to get them to have these sexual desires for women. Heterosexuality is not a goal. If it's not homosexuality, it's not homosexuality. What is it? Holy sexuality. Actually, Rachel was, was even mentioning this. Holy sexuality, when you look at the full counsel of God, there's only two paths for us to be on. If you're single, which all of us were, and, and you said, you know, everyone at 10 years old is, is, is single, I actually take that further. I say that no one, when people say I didn't choose to be married, that's not true because I've never met anyone who's born married. No one. I mean, we're all, that's default. Singleness is default. You don't choose that. You just are. You choose to get married. Most people who are married, then one or the other will go home to be with the Lord, and the other one's left behind, uh, widowed, single, not by choice. So it, two paths. If you're single, what does that mean regarding your sexuality? Be faithful to God by being sexually abstinent. If you're married, and what does that mean regarding your sexuality? Be faithful to God by being faithful, completely faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So there's only two options for holy sexuality. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness, marriage. But also regarding change, that change is not the absence of temptations. There's this misunderstanding that if there's a person that still has these desires, that they haven't been fully transformed, that they, that they haven't been really delivered yet. But we don't apply that to anything else. Say I have a friend who was a drunk, stops drinking. After years of sobriety, he still admits he has still urges to drink, but he doesn't. Would we tell him you haven't been changed? I hope not, because I think the manifestation of grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to God. So I think those are just some kind of foundational things before we jump into some these practical things. And by practical, I mean I will solve every single one of your questions. So it was $20 well spent. Now, we know, we know, right, that um, the situations on the ground are always nuanced. They're always particular. But there are still principles that can help us as we think about how to love our LGBT family, friends, and neighbors well. One of the things that's, yeah, get that out of here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, One of the things that is interesting in our moment in 2018 is we have this um, dual reality going on. One reality is that there has never been a time where the LGBT community has not had more cultural clout. I mean, everywhere, celebrated, on TV shows, excited. Like, half of my news in my news feed on the Olympics was just about Adam Rippon, who was just, like, an okay skater, but he was really, like, happy and gay. He seemed great, right? But, you know, there's just an, exci- it, there's an excitement in our cultural moment. And so sometimes we can feel like, oh, since that's true, um, and maybe all gay people are really powerful and really confident and really swaggering. But the reality on the ground, even though that's true culturally perhaps, is that most LGBT people, especially younger people, are still in an intense place of vulnerability. You know, over 80% of LGBT people grew up in the church and often experienced some kind of, some kind of trauma in the church. And so, um, you know, there's, another, there's a minister who deals um, primarily with, with gay youth in the church, and he was talking about how so many of them don't feel like they're seen as people 
I'm going to read this list off my phone because I'm a good millennial. Now, he describes them as that they've experienced themselves either as an issue to ignore, a problem to solve, a threat to fight, a danger to exclude, a thing to preach at, an embarrassment to hide, a peer to reject, an oddity to mock, a child to shame, or a family member to disown. That a lot of our posture so far has been one of fear and exclusion. I'm talking primarily, I want you to hear me right now, I'm talking primarily uh, as we talk about some of these practical principles to someone who does not claim Christ and who might experience the fact that they are gay as a barrier between the gospel and them because of what they've experienced firsthand in churches, what they've seen at a distance from churches. And so sometimes we can ask, well, like, what, um, so how can I be loving without sacrificing the true things that God that God has proclaimed in his word, the things that we know are good. One of the ways that we can be loving is to be thoughtful about our language, to be, um, sometimes you hear, you know, you'll hear things like the gays, or you can talk a lot about um, the gay agenda. And most people that I meet on campus, and I work at Boston University and Emerson College, most people I meet on campus are not like signed up or they get like the gay agenda email every week, you know, and they're like, how can I go out and fulfill the gay agenda, right? They're, they're mostly just people who are, they might be politically active in some way because they're college students, but they're, they're mostly just people. Or um, sometimes, you know, I think a lot in the, in the youth culture, but yeah, even the phrase like practicing homosexual, you're sort of like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to practice my homosexuality? We, we mean a lot of these phrases in innocent ways sometimes, but they sound, they can just put a barrier. They can sound a little bit off, particularly um, when we, a lot of times in the past when people have used the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. I think Christopher referred to this even last night. Like a lot of what, what we have meant in the past by that is we love you, this part of your life is not a barrier to us loving you. But it's only ever heard now as we don't love you at all and we're going to say it in a really sneaky, hypocritical way. So you might not mean that when you say it, but understanding that that's how it's heard, we want to think as missionaries, life on mission. We want to communicate in ways that are going to be heard without sacrificing what God has said in his word. Another way that is simple to show love and to open things up, is to have a lot of questions, to ask a lot of questions. Especially if someone decides to come out to you, and maybe they haven't come out to a lot of other people, like disclosed their sexuality. Like, they've decided already that you're a trustworthy person. Whether you deserve that or not, you should be, you should be willing to say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And you don't you don't necessarily, in that moment, you don't need to have a lot of answers or have a lot of dialogue. You just be ready, be ready to ask them, like, when did, you, when did you first notice this about yourself? And then when they stop and there's a pause, say, tell me more. You can ask, what has your process been like understanding this about yourself? What's your process been like talking to your friends and family? And when they answer and when they pause, say, tell me more. You can ask about their experiences with the church. 
You can ask about if they've been hurt. If it's appropriate, you can step in and apologize for things that have happened to them. You can always just keep asking and, and, and to say, tell me more. Especially when people have been engaged with on a personal level, they're going to be so much more willing to hear about what animates you. And at least theoretically, the gospel animates you. Your relationship with Christ animates you. It can help create an open door. At the beginning of John 8, you might know the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. The Pharisees bring her to Jesus. This story might not be originally in the Gospel of John, but everybody accepts it anyway. So it was, you know, there's a little asterisk there, you know. <laughs> but um, the whole time they're talking to Jesus about her, they're never talking to her. She is not a person in that situation. She is just an issue. And they're, they're right about her sin. And Jesus doesn't contradict them. I mean, he says, whoever among you hasn't sinned, throw the stone. He's agreeing with them that it is sin, that it is punishable sin. And it's after they leave. What a moment of beauty, right? They actually, they leave, they walk away, and it's (laughs) the older ones first. (laughs) There's some awareness there. That's the first time in the text that the woman is spoken to. And Jesus says, oh, have they... No one's condemned you? Where'd they go? There's an opportunity there to actually let her be a part of the process. We need to show people that we think of them as people and draw near to them. We don't have to sacrifice truth to do that, but we want to, we want to dignify them. And I think it was really interesting when I was studying that passage this week, as Jesus says... Let he who has no sin throw the first stone, knowing that none of them do. But then it's down to just Jesus and her, and he's the one who hasn't sinned. I mean, he has a right to throw that rock. And he says, has no one condemned you? She says, no one. Notice she isn't trying to explain it away. Well, I have a hard history. That's why I was doing this. Or, well, he dragged me. Like, there's a there's a posture of repentance in her place she's just she's just like no no one she's not trying to defend herself and jesus says neither do i condemn you go and sin no more and you uh, ancient commentators felt a little uncomfortable about that because it looked almost like he was being permissive about her sin there's a way you could look at that text and think does jesus not care about holiness perhaps especially given her disposition there in that moment Perhaps he cares more about holiness than we do. Because he could kill her right there. And the law would be fulfilled. But Jesus, given his position, says, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. Mercy triumphs over judgment, as his brother wrote later in the book of James. But there's this opportunity. She has been forgiven much, loves much that she becomes a monument to his grace and mercy and gets to experience holiness, a holiness that has overtaken a life of sin. Both Jesus and she become more than conquerors. It's not just about here's a sin and we're crushing it. 
as an issue, but it's about a person who's set free into holiness. Now, of course, there are some people who will say, who will kind of take this position and maybe say, well, I've also heard it, you know, judge not lest you be judged, so I I can't say that anything is wrong. Or, um, you know, my friend is pursuing this, my friend is a Christian, and she's dating a girl, and they seem happy, and I I was told not to judge. And they're taking that from Matthew 7, 1, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, the idea that in the middle of it, Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be able to say anything wrong about moral behavior is crazy because he's, throughout that sermon, taking the law and making it even more tight. He's saying, oh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So suddenly saying in the middle of that sermon that we shouldn't care about what people do is a weird interpretive move. It does not work in the context. Part of that is because we have two different connotations of the word judge in English, just like the word judge in Greek. Just getting back to context, right? You can judge as in act as a judge, decide whether someone is guilty or innocent, which is to sit in God's place. And he's preaching in that sermon to people who are self-righteous. And what he's talking about there is like, you are not God. You do not get to decide whether someone is guilty or innocent. You do not get to sit in that place. But it doesn't mean the other form of, the other thing that the English word judge means, which is basically to discern. Like, I need to buy a new car and I need to make a judgment about what car is best for my family. Or, I am being tempted with sin. I need to make a, I need to discern, I need to judge whether this temp, like, what to do in this situation morally. That is not what Jesus is saying not to do. He calls us to do that even in the next paragraph when he talks about because he's saying, don't judge, don't act as the judge. He's like, you have this giant log in your eye. Why are you worried about your brother's speck? And he doesn't say, take the log out of your eye and mind your own business. He says, remove the log from your eye so that you can take the speck out of your brother's. We are called to care for each other We are called to speak into each other's life, to have discernment about what God's word has said. And if someone claims Christ and is our brother or sister, maybe we do have a log, but we're still called to remove that humbly and to help our brother and sister with the speck. We we have to step in and speak the scriptures to each other to, to plead and to say, this is what God's word says and you are in danger if you're not living in line with it. So when we're sharing the gospel, we don't necessarily lead with that, right? Because sometimes God's sexuality doesn't make sense if you don't know him. But if someone is in Christ, we have a responsibility to speak clearly and plainly about what the word says. So so going going back to evangelism, going back to sharing the gospel, you know, I think sometimes we can be so afraid, we think, I have to build up all this relational capital before I can share the gospel. But I say... You should share like Chicago Democrats vote, which is early and often. You know, there's, if you are a real person with your friends, they will want to hear from you. Like you will be, you will have a window to, to share about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And the gospel is the power of God. It is not, God's arm is never too short to save. So when you're thinking about reaching out to your LGBT neighbors, you want to listen, you want to be 
careful about how they're going to hear you and want to love them by sharing the gospel and doing it in winsome ways and, and doing it together as a community. Um, for, there's a few. I thought I'd just throw up some of these slides first. I, I'm, this is my professor coming out. So I, I, I loved when my professors had outlines, so that's why I think in outlines, I think. I dream in outlines. Um, uh, so I, I think it's important that, you know, for us to be compassionate, we need to really realize that we're all sinners to begin with. Um, I, I really think that, and I think I mentioned this last night, that we have diagnosed this incorrectly and we've thought of this strictly as a disorder, um, as a disease, as like a psychological disease, uh, as a developmental, you know, something happened that they haven't matured into heterosexuality. Um, and when we do that, we're buying more into Freud than Scripture, because at the end of the day, we're all created in the, in the image of God, but we're also, we have the effects of the fall, original sin. And so we all have a sin nature. Um, certainly, that sin nature is expressed a little differently in each person, but it's still, at the end of the day, stemming from our sin nature. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised that someone actually has same-sex attractions, nothing necessarily. And, and, and I want to say this to some of you parents in this room that might be bearing a lot of shame and guilt. It's not your fault. You could have been a perfect parent. You could have done everything right. Perfect parenting doesn't guarantee perfect children. How many of you guys know of like parents who were like awful parents and their kids turned out great? You guys know what I'm talking about? Don't we hate those people? <laughs> and then, I mean, I'm sure you probably know, like, other couples that were like, they did, I mean, they looked like they did everything right. You know, they went to all the soccer games, all the, you know, the dad, like, came home all day and they would spend time, and their kids somehow, like, weren't following Jesus. They rebelled or whatever. It's like, you know, it's, parents were not God. My mom, in her, in her uh, kind of talk for, for parents, she says, the primary goal of a Christian parent is to not, not necessarily to produce godly children, but the primary goal of a Christian parent is to be a godly parent. You have control over that. Be godly, point your kids to Jesus, and then let God do the rest. You, you, you point them to Jesus, hope that they do the same thing, but when it doesn't, you know what? I mean, they have to make that decision for themselves whether they're going to follow Jesus or not, and this undue guilt that we place upon—sometimes it's uneven, unsaid—the uh, shame and guilt. So many times, when, when parents find out, you know, when their kids open up to them, you know, one of the first things they think is, "What did I do wrong?" You know, if I wish I would have just been there for you know all, you know, her tennis lessons or all, you know, <laughs> that wouldn't have made any difference. Your kid still was a, will be a sinner, and I think the sooner we realize that, the sooner that we can take this huge guilt and wait off um off of us um also i think we need to be really conscious about our words and being conscious about you know if the world is fighting against the gay jokes and the bullying and i wonder why isn't it the body of christ that's taking the lead on that we have the foundation to do that the world doesn't we have the theology to say that everyone has value because we're all created in god's image the world doesn't we of all people should be doing that um, let me give you some practical things here what, that we need to focus upon. And I, I love this verse. 
uh, that we often forget. Because, you know, you know when, when we, you know, I often hear people say, you know, I have this gay friend. When, I te- what, you know, when can I tell them? Tell them what? Well, you know, that it's sin. And it's like we think that, like, that has to be the first thing that you, we, I need to talk to them about this, that they're living in sin, or I have to talk to them, that, you know, what's. And the gospel is not simply a, a list of do's and don'ts. And if we think about the message we've been giving to the gay community, I talk about it as being the one spiritual law. You guys heard of the four spiritual laws? The one spiritual law goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. That's all we've been giving, telling the gay community. That's that's it. You're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why gays and lesbians want nothing to do with Christians because we have not been giving them the complete truth. We have been telling them an incomplete truth. And you know telling someone an incomplete truth can be just as harmful as telling someone a lie. And the complete truth, I mean, and this is just part of it. Such, yes, Paul lists all these sins, and oftentimes we only focus upon one, when really, if we look at all ten, really none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul doesn't stop there, and he follows us up with this verse. Such were, right? I love words. Were. What, what type of verb is that? Past tense. Past tense. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Actually, that's not good news. That's amazing news. That's news that we can tell anyone and should tell everyone. So our message must be redemptive. I, I tell people, you know, our friends in the gay community, our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who have same-sex attractions, their main issue is not their same-sex attractions. Their main issue is to know and fully surrender to Christ. My biggest sin was not my same-sex relationships. My biggest sin was unbelief. That is what separated me with God. And so as we pray for those in the gay community, we're not praying that they will, like, you know, get married, you know, with someone of the opposite sex or stop, you know, break up. You know, that's a secondary, that's a tertiary issue. The main thing is that they would know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and fully surrender who they are to him. Um, let me give you some practical things here as, as we, before the, the, the Q&A, some practical things here. Because in our, you know, passion to minister, I think we need to first differentiate and not conflate everyone with same-sex attraction into one group. Because we have people who know Christ and hold to biblical sexuality, and those who don't know Christ, uh, or, you know, who, who identify as gay, many of them don't know Christ. Some say, I can be gay and have my same-sex relationship, and they're holding to a false gospel. Actually, I, I kind of call it, it's, I call it the neo-prosperity gospel. You know, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's like, I see the Matthew Vines and Justin Lees, you know, these, and, and Jen Hatmakers, you know, that, you know, oh, well, you know, the, there's so much harm being done to the gay community because we are asking them to be single for the rest of their life. You know, that's, you know, so therefore, you know, we, we want them to be happy. I want them to have what I have in happiness. I mean, that's in a sense, I, I think it's kind of like a neo-prosperity gospel, um, a false gospel. So in other words, we need to share Christ, the true gospel with our friends who are holding to this false gospel. But let's say you have a believer in Christ who has same-sex attraction, they could fight with you. What are some things that you would say to them if they opened up to you. After this week, let's say you have someone that 
one of your good friends who confides with you, first thank them that, that they trust you with a secret. Second, tell them that, that they're not alone. I think a lot of people wrestling through these issues think that they have to go through their life alone. That's a scary thought. Third, this could be m- the most important. Help remind them that their identity has to be in Christ. Don't view who you are as all-encompassed by your sexual desires. And actually, all of us, we need to be remind- reminded of this. Your identity is not in, what, in your work. Your identity is not in, even in necessarily in your home or in your children or in money or in your hobby. Your identity should be as an image bearer of God, a reflection of Christ. Um, be realistic. It's going to be hard, you know, in this struggle. I mean, our journey, it's not easy. Um, but I tell people, I tell people, actually, it was easier when I wasn't a Christian. I did whatever I wanted. I had an itch, I scratched it, I, you know, I had a desire, I did it. Now I have a heavenly father that I want to please, and I have an enemy nipping at my heels. But the difference is, my circumstances today aren't, you know, my, my joy isn't dependent upon my circumstances today. It's dependent upon the hope that I have, the assurance that I have in the future good from God. Uh, don't focus upon how a person walks or talks or the length of their hair or whether they're wearing heels or, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, a, a, a lady doesn't have to have a makeover to be a godly woman. A man doesn't have to learn how to throw a football to be a godly man. I think the measure of it should be our heart. And honestly, I want to see change from the inside out, not from the outside in. We need to encourage God honoring same sex relationships. Uh, that, because, I needed to relearn how to love other men in the way that God intended, not in the way that my flesh wants, but the way that God intended. And these relationships are relationships that should be connected to the church. It's not about having, you know, covenant committed friendships, but it's about living as true brothers and sisters in Christ. What I need more than anything else are brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. Um, and so what should you do, you know, with our gay friends? These are things that, lot, lot that you mentioned. Uh, don't compare this with, <laughs> don't compare this with pedophilia, murder, you know, so I don't know why sometimes, you know, like, you know, they have a gay friend. They're like, oh, you know, what you're doing is just sin like any other sin, like murder, you know, pedophilia. It's, that doesn't, you know, that's not endearing. Don't use the two words lifestyle and choice. Um, struggling with your lifestyle, these these are words, these are like our vocabulary that might make sense for us because we're able to realize that our sin, our behavior is not who we are, but it's what we do. But when you don't have a biblical worldview, who you are is what, is, is, is what you do. Uh, and so just take those two words out until you kind of come more, you know, just don't use, use those two words when you're engaging with gay friends. Don't say, love the sinner, hate the sin. Uh, I always say, do it, don't say it. You know, I mean, think about this. When you tell someone, I love you, but I hate your sin, they don't feel loved. <laughs> they really don't. Also, parents, when you have, uh, you know, your son or daughter or a loved one confide with you or open up that they're gay, uh, obviously say, I love you. But you know what you don't follow it up with? But. I love you, but. When you say but, you've just erased what you just said. And all they hear is what comes after. Just say, I love you. You can have that conversation later. Um, at that moment, they need to know that your, your love for them is, doesn't going to change. As I said in my testimony earlier, unconditional love isn't the same as unconditional approval of my behavior. 
Um, so, you know, just live that, just say you, just by saying you love someone doesn't mean that you necessarily approve of what they're doing. Um, don't always feel that you have to debate with people all the time. I know sometimes Christians feel like, you know, if someone asks me questions, I have to tell them the truth. Well, if you look at Jesus and, and the way that he engaged with others, he did not always answer their question. A lot of times he answered a question with a question. Sometimes he was silent. Sometimes he spoke in parables. You know, people are like, I don't know what he just said. You know, I mean, when he, when he was with crowds, he was like speaking in parables. People are like, I don't know what he said. I mean, why? Because most likely they came to see a show. They, came, they, they, weren't really, they weren't really like the disciples wanting to learn and have a changed life and follow the, you know, the one who is the Christ. They just wanted to see the show, so he spoke to them in parables. And so I think it's the same way. We need to know, have discernment, and judge where is a person's heart. Are they ready to receive that truth or not? And if they're not, you know, I don't think you have to. So when people you know, point a finger in your chest and says, do you think this is sin? You don't have to answer that question. I think it's, it's okay to deflect. You're not saying a lie. You're just deflecting and, and actually hopefully pointing to the... Because answering these questions isn't our goal. Our goal is to hopefully get to a point where we could share the truths about the goodness of God. Tr- you know, not only about you know, the existence of God, but about his son Jesus Christ, about scripture, about who we are as sinners, about God you know, Christ the Redeemer, all these good things before we even get to the morality issues. Um, so I think it's okay to deflect, you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you could say either, you know, I'd, I'd rather focus on our similarities and differences. You know, I don't, you know, I don't want to debate all the time. I'd even say something like, um, you don't even believe in God. You know, why does it matter if we talk about what he, what, what are his morals? You know, let's talk about God first. You know, bring it back to the more important things before, you know, dwelling on those things. Um, here's some things that you should do. Um, and, and a lot of these were, are just kind of overlap. Pray and fast. I think, uh, we've lost the spiritual disciplines. Um, we don't pray. We don't really fast. Um, listen. If you want to just, just like, Rachel was saying, um, you got to listen. If you want people to listen to you, you have to listen to them first. Um, and do that by op- asking open-ended questions. Um, tell, you know, tell me more. And um, I, I know, I, I heard a story of a father who, after his daughter, who identified as lesbian, was, was, had a girlfriend, uh, but came out to her parents and the father, um, after a few months, just asked the daughter, um, "Can you tell me more about, you know, what was what was what it was like coming out and stuff?" And she just started crying because she just thought that her dad would never be interested in that. And and of course, I mean, that wasn't like she came to Christ or whatever. But at least it was, it was just a way to show we show we care sometimes just by listening. Uh, be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite your gay neighbor over for dinner. And I know this is usually the case. A lot of Christians say, if I have someone that's gay in my in my house or have them over for dinner, am I condoning their sin? Last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. You know, nothing new. You're just eating with them. You're not sinning with them. Big difference. Um, be intentional. Uh, be patient and persistent. It's going to take time. Uh, you know, even for me, eight years, I think, is actually a short time. And lastly, be transparent. Uh, before you preach the gospel, you've got to live the gospel. 
Uh, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel live out in my parents' lives. I didn't leave pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me they were sinful. I left it because I was shown something better, and his name is Jesus. So our job, you know, as simple or as complex as that may sound, is to live our lives in a way that reflect the change that's happening in your life and reflect that in reality and live out the reality of a new life. And, and show the world. I mean, the, the world is clinging to so many different things. All the fool's goal in the world, job, career, a spouse, family, whatever it is, we need to show just by our lives that not only is Jesus better than all of that, but Jesus is best. 